0: We are this morning going to be wrapping up our series that we started several weeks ago called The Rhythm of God. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at what, how does God work? How does God move? How does God operate in our lives? And sometimes it's confusing. Sometimes we look at our lives. We look at the brokenness in our lives. We look at the brokenness in our world. And sometimes we have to stop and scratch our heads and go, how, what is God doing? How does God work? Does this even make sense? And sometimes when we read the Bible, we think we go to the Bible for answers. And sometimes we can be even more confused by looking at the Bible and go, I don't understand what God's doing or what he's trying to say or what's happening. And so often, like a good book or like a good movie, we simply can't start in the middle. We have to go back to the beginning because it's in the beginning that we see... The patterns and rhythm of how God will work, not only throughout Scripture, but in our lives and in your lives and throughout the history of the world. It's in the moments in our lives and the chaos of our lives and the disappointments of our lives and the brokenness in our lives and in our worlds that we have to go back to the rhythms of God that God establishes from the very beginning to be reminded, wait a second, God does have a plan in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the chaos... God does have a plan. And so we looked even at the beginning of Genesis, the very first week of this series, and we saw what? In the midst of the darkness and in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of death, there was what? God brought about light and life And that would be the pattern all throughout history, that God would be the God that comes down to bring light into the midst of the darkness and life into death and order out of the chaos. It's how he works in the world. It's how he works in your life. It's how he continues to work. And these are the patterns and the rhythms that we see all throughout Scripture. We're going to end this series this morning by looking at the story of Abraham. And Abraham is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 11. And it's a story of Abraham that will set us up for understanding how God will eventually complete his mission here on earth. This work that he started in the garden of bringing light into the midst of the darkness, we will see through the promise that he delivers to Abraham... In Genesis chapter twelve, we will begin to see how God is weaving together His purpose and His plan for the entire world, and it all begins in the life of Abraham. So, we're actually going to start before we look at Genesis chapter twelve. We're going to look at the very end of Genesis chapter eleven, and in in the end of at the end of Genesis chapter eleven, starting in verse thirty one we will see where this man Abraham comes from. So we'll look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, and we will go through Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. It says, Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, and his grandson and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his sons, Ab- and his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there the days of terah were 205 years and terah died in haran now the lord god said to abram go from the country your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you and i will make you a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing i will bless those who bless you and in him Who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went. As the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan, And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, for the few moments that we have left together, Lord, in the quietness of our hearts, Lord, I pray that the spirit of the living God would come down and would preach Jesus to our souls. Lord, would you remove all distractions, Lord, in the busyness of life, in the hardships of life, Lord, in the weariness of life, Lord, we need a good word this morning. And so, Lord, I pray that you would deliver it to us through the work of your spirit preaching Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here this morning seeing Jesus for that is whom we've come to see. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you might be confused. I said that we were looking at the story of Abraham, but when you read chapter 11 and chapter 12, you see a man by the name of Abram. Well, don't get too caught up on that and we're going to, for the sake of the sermon, we are going to use the name Abraham because this is the story, this, what I just read is the beginning of the story of Abraham. But before his name is changed to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis, his name is first Abram. And we'll understand later why God will change his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram simply means the father, and Abraham means the father of many or the father of the multitudes. And we'll find out why that name was changed from Abram to Abraham. I've mean, got a lot to do with the promise. So Abram simply means father and Abraham means the father of many. Or you say Abram means daddy and Abraham's Big Daddy. So that's kind of how Abraham and Abraham and Abraham works. But like I said, for the sake of our time together this morning and for the sake of confusing you even more, we're just going to refer to this man here in Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12 as Abraham. For this is the story of Abraham and the beginning and the origin of Abraham. And what we see here in Genesis chapter 11 and 12 is the call of Abraham. And it's significant in the story of redemption. When we start thinking about how God God calls Abraham when we start to think about how God called him out we can't just start in Genesis chapter 12 we have to the reason I added those few verses before Genesis chapter 12 those two verses in chapter 11 is because it gives us context to the calling of Abraham it gives us understanding of what God was calling him out of what God was calling him from because if we don't understand where he's calling him from we won't understand the power and the magnitude and the beauty And the radical nature of the calling of Abraham. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at a few aspects of the calling of Abraham. I want us to look at the power behind the call. Because it's a powerful call that God gives Abraham. I want us to look at the radical nature of the call of Abraham as well. Because it's not just like any other call. And then lastly, I want us to look at the promise of the call. There's a promise attached to the call of Abraham. That is not only significant to Abraham, but significant to us and for us this morning. So first, the power of the call. What was this call that God gave Abraham? Why was it important for us to understand where Abraham was before he was called by God in Genesis chapter 12? Well, in Genesis chapter 11, it says that this guy by the name of Abraham is camping out and living in this area called Ur of the Chaldeans. Well, Ur the Chaldeans was a place that was known for uh, lunar worship. It was the capital of lunar worship uh, and moon worship. It was known as the center of the place where you would go to worship the moon. And what's significant about that is this. When God comes down and he calls Abraham in the midst of idol worship, in the midst of worshiping the moon, in Ur of the Chaldeans, the reason that is important is because we have to understand how powerful this call was in Abraham's life. You see, Abraham wasn't the guy that had his act together. He wasn't the guy that was searching after God. He wasn't the guy that was out there looking for God and saying, hey, does anybody know where I can find the creator of the heavens and the earth? The God that created the heavens and the earth, the God that we read and we celebrate and we worship here in scripture is not the God that is even crossing Abraham's mind to the slightest. You see, Abraham was totally captured by something else. He was captured by something smaller than God. He was The God that created the heavens and the earth was the last thing on Abraham's mind and heart. And it was in that moment that God comes down and pursues Abraham and calls him out. And the reason that's significant is that is exactly how God works in our lives. That's how God works in your life. It's not like you were out and about if you know God this morning and you were going, hey, I'm looking for God. I'm looking for the God that created the heavens and the earth. I'm looking to worship God. No, in fact, the Bible tells us that we're alienated from God. The Bible tells us that we're enemies of God. The Bible tells us that God is the last thing on our mind and our hearts that if it wasn't for the gracious, sovereign, all-pursuing, unconditional calling and pursuit of God, we'd be lost. And that's exactly how the call of God happened and made itself known in Abraham's life. Abraham's got literally his head in the clouds, looking at the moon, worshiping the moon, and God is the last thing on his mind when God comes down and pursues him and calls him out as he's worshiping idols. And isn't it interesting that every generation falls into this trap, right? We have seen this rhythm and this pattern before in Genesis, that God creates the heavens and the earth, and he says, just worship me. And a few chapters later, what do we see? They're worshiping not the creator, but they're worshiping the creation. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 11. A- Abraham and his generation is not worshiping the creator, but they're worshiping the creation. And God calls them out and he says, you think the creation is something to be seen. You think the creation is something to behold. Wait till you encounter the one that created the heavens and the earth. Wait till you see the one that created the moon that you worship. And that's exactly what we do in our lives. That is forever our struggle forever our struggle, God giving us and blessing us with incredible, incredibly good things. Our job, our vocation, our relationship our resources, providing for us in so many ways, and taking those things, and instead of saying, hey, look at these things, and look how they have blessed my life, and pointing my affections heavenward and saying, thank God for how you've provided. Instead, what do we do? We take those things and we begin to worship them. We forget the benefactor, and we just look at the benefits, and we begin to worship the benefits. We begin to worship the provision. We begin to worship the creation. Wherever you're at in your life right now, this is your your forever struggle, your perpetual struggle to not take your attention away from the creator but to look at the creation for that to be the thing that captures your heart and so we need to be called as well just as Abram, Abraham needed to be called out. Stop worshiping the creation that leads to death and look to the one that brings life. So too do we need to be called out from worshiping our idols and the gracious call of God. And what happens in that call? Why is it so powerful? What's so powerful about the call of God is it is a totally different paradigm than we're used to in the world. You see, when, when we are in trouble, when something's broken in our house, your sink is broke, your oven's broke, your kitchen's broke, your bathroom's broke, whatever it might be, whatever the thing is in your life that's broken, it could be a, a, a medical condition. Do you just walk up to some random person on the street and say, hey, can you you help me? You walk up to somebody random and say, hey, do you know anything about a kitchen? Do you know anything about fixing toilets? No, of course not. What do you do? When something's broken, whether it's in your house or in your life, what do you do? You call somebody that is what? Qualified. We call people that are qualified. But what does God do here? It's the opposite. He calls the unqualified. Think about that. It's not God looking down and saying, hmm, Abraham, he looks like a good one. I mean, he's got some credibility, right, in building nations and making his name great and being the type of guy that would bless the nations of the earth. No, Abraham's probably the last guy that would be qualified to do this. And see, the world operates off of a totally different operating system, totally different paradigm than the way God works and operates. You see, we call people that are qualified to come and rescue us to bring help, to bring restoration, to bring redemption. God calls those that are unqualified. And it is through the call of God that does what? That qualifies. He doesn't call Abraham because he's qualified. He calls Abraham and it is the call of God itself in his life that makes him qualified. Don't miss that. It's the call of God on your life that qualifies you. The unconditional Pursuing love, sovereign, lovingly, call of God on your life and in your heart that qualifies you before God. And without that, we're lost. So, the power of the call, he calls the unqualified, the most unqualified, the guy that has rejected him and is wor- literally worshiping the moon. So, we see here first the power of the call. But we not only see the power of the call in Abraham's life, calling him out of darkness and out of death and out of worshiping idols, but we also see the radical nature of this call. Think about how God calls Abraham. In verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. In the original Hebrew here in verse 1, what it literally says is, Go you yourself. Or get yourself out. What God is trying to press upon Abraham is, I don't want you to bring anything with you. It's not, hey God, you're calling me to this new life. You're calling me to yourself and you can have... 50% of me, or you can have 70% of me, or you can have 90% of me, what God is literally saying to Abraham is, this calling on your life, I need all of you. It will require a complete sacrifice of everything you've known. It will require a complete sacrifice of everything that you've seen, that you have come to know to be comfortable. It will require a complete sacrifice of everything that you have based your life on, that is, you think is keeping you secure. Everything that you've built your life on, that you think is actually saving you, it will require all of you. Get yourself out. Get out of that country from your kindred and go. And what's even more radical about this call is not only is God calling Abraham to sacrifice everything to answer the call of God, but he doesn't even give him any details. It'd be one thing if he says, hey, this is how it's going to work. We're going to build a great nation, and it's going to be at this exact uh, geographical location. Pull out Google Maps, and this is exactly where it's going to be. Hey, this is how, when I say all the nations are going to be blessed, this is how long it's going to take. It's going to take 2,000 years, and there's going to be this son that comes, and his name's going to be Jesus. And he's going to commission apostles and a church to spread the gospel all around the world, and that's how your name will be great. And think, it even goes further. If you're familiar with Abraham's story at all, what, what later happens? Not only does God give him, tell him to come out and to go out of the country, then God will actually give him a son. And then what does God do? Go sacrifice him on a mountain. And God doesn't even tell him how that's going to work. Go up on the mountain, sacrifice, even though this is the son of promise, go up, now that you finally have a son, your wife was barren, now that you have a son, now I want you to sacrifice him. And every step along the way, God never gives the details. He never gives an explanation. I'm going to make you a great nation. How? Don't worry about it. Just follow me. I'm going to make your name great. Where? And how? How's this going to happen? Don't worry about it. Let me take care of the details. I want you to go up on the mountain and sacrifice a son. Why? Stop asking questions. I've got this. See, the radical nature of God's call is not only does he call for a complete sacrifice of your former life and into this new life of following him, he gives no details and explanation. It wouldn't have been easier if he pulls out the blueprint and says, this is exactly how it's going to unfold, this is exactly what it's going to look like, this is exactly what's going to happen. It'd be a lot easier to follow the call of God, and it'd be a lot easier for you this morning to follow the call of God as well. That uncomfortable, sacrificial call of God, wherever you are in life right now, whatever God is calling you to in life right now, whatever that might be, don't expect God to show up and say, well, when you answer this call, this is exactly what it's going to look like. And this is what I'm going to do. And this is how it's going to work out. And it's going to be super comfortable. And it's going to be super easy. And it's not going to require really messing anything up in your life. It's not really going to inconvenience you one bit. That's not how God works. You see, for Abraham to answer the call of God on his life, to leave one life and enter into a life that follows after him required a complete sacrifice. It, complete, it required going into this new life blind, not knowing exactly what God would do or how he provide, would provide. And it required complete letting go of all things that he held dear And thought he was building his life around that made him secure. For you right now in your life, God is calling you to something. God is calling you to a career change. God is calling you to move. God is calling you to leave a certain lifestyle. God is calling you to break off a certain relationship. God is calling you to make a stand for something that might not be very popular or might be very inconvenient. And wouldn't it be nice if God said, and when you answer the call that I've put on your life, this is exactly how it's going to unfold. And he doesn't do that. All he says is, follow me. What? Rob, I wish you would have given this sermon three years ago. I mean, it would have been a lot easier if you would have told me about this whole calling thing. I mean, I would have been able to prepare a little better. I didn't know this was going to happen and this was going to happen. You don't understand how many things I've already done in my life. You don't understand how many decisions I've already made. I mean, I can't, I can't really move right now. My life's pretty secure. It's pretty safe. It's pretty stable. I'm sure Abraham would have said that too. God, my life's so stable. My life is so secure. My life's so safe. I mean, maybe when I was a teenager, maybe I was in my 20s, and I could have thought about some kind of radical life change in my life. I could have thought a little easier. I wouldn't have be been able to wrap my mind around some type of change to answer the call of God in my life. But, but now, now God comes. Now God comes. Towards the end of Abraham's life, he says, I want you to do something so radical, so inconvenient, so uncomfortable, so sacrificial for the sake of my kingdom, for the sake of my calling. I mean, I think of my life in particular. I think of how comfortable my life was before I answered the call to be lead pastor here at this church. I think of myself, and if anybody knew me well, they knew that being lead pastor of anything was the last thing on my mind. If you know me well, even the thought of preaching was something that didn't even cross my mind. Wasn't interested. God, I'm so happy with my life. I'm happy with my calling. I'm happy with things being the way they are until God comes down, shakes everything up. And he says, I want you, the the guy that doesn't even like to preach. I want you to preach every Sunday. What do do I say? I'll run out of things. I honestly had the fear I'd run out of things to say. I said, I I can come up with a good story. I I can't come up with stories every week. I can't come up with content every week. What am I going to say? I mean, I've got three or four sermons. I can use them and maybe preach them in the next five years. But every single week, And then I had the fear, now I'm being really vulnerable with you. Then I had the fear, what if they call me pastor, call me to be the pastor, and I'm I'm called to preach every Sunday. What if not one single person shows up? Why would they want to come? So you, even showing up today, blesses my heart. One person showed up, it blesses my heart. Thank you, I appreciate that. But seriously, these were the fears that went in through my mind. And I'm responsible. And I've got all of this weight on my shoulders. And what about my family? And about the time and all the things that I used to love to do, I can't do anymore. And I I came up with every excuse in the world. And God said, I'm going to make your life so uncomfortable. I'm going to call you to do the very thing that you said you would never do. I'm going to call you to do the very thing that you said you just didn't even really enjoy. Every Sunday, I'm going to call you to bring God's word. To God's people. And let me take care of the details. Let me take care of how the church grows. Let me take care of how the church transitions. Let me take care of how the church adjusts. Adjust. Let me take care of all those things. Because if anybody knows Rob Pacienza, I am a micromanager to the core. I am. I am. Every, every I dotted, every T crossed, all the details, and God just threw me into this and said, it will be so big. It will be so much you will eventually just have to give up and surrender. And that is the radical call that God places on our life. A call to surrender, to embrace the uncomfortable socially, culturally, physically, for the sake of the call of God and his kingdom. There's power in the call of God. There's a, a sense that it is radically challenging and sacrificial, the call that... God places on our life. But the last thing that we see here is the promise. You see, there's promise in the calling of God. It is powerful. It is radical. But there's a promise. In verse 2 and 3, verse 2 through 3, there are six promises that God gives to Abraham. Six promises in verse two and three that God gives to Abraham. But the question is was it the promises alone that caused Abraham to leave his old life? And enter into a new life? Was it the promises alone in verse 2 and 3 that caused Abraham to sacrifice everything for the call and the sake of the kingdom? Was it the promises alone that caused Abraham to get very uncomfortable, to sacrifice everything, to lose his security for the sake of the call of God? You see, because you could easily see that Abraham's nothing but a promise chaser. Because I'm sure the, in Ur of the Chaldeans, what was the promise of the moon god? It, it, it was a promise for fertility and for wealth and riches and wealth and prosperity. See, the, the, the gods of the stars and the gods of the moon and the gods of the, it sounds familiar, right? We, we've simply, in our sophisticated day and age, we simply replaced the, the moon god and the sun god and the star gods with a hundred different other things in our world and our culture that promised to bring hope. That promise to bring life. that promise to bring prosperity. that promise to bring us our, the things that our hearts long for. So was it the promises alone? Did Abraham just go, I'm going to leave these promises for these promises? Hey, the, 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 the moon god promises me one thing. But this god over here, he's promising to make my name great. He's promised to, to make me into a nation. I'm just following after that promise. Or was there something bigger? Was there something greater? You see, for Abraham, there was a promise underneath the promise. See, all the promises that God gave, there was a promise underneath the promises. You see, to make a na- to make one man into a nation, you needed what offspring. To for Abraham to be a nation that bless the nations of the earth, you needed offspring. In order for Abraham's name to be great among the nations, you needed what? You needed offspring. See, every promise that God gave Abraham required offspring. It required one that would eventually come To fulfill the promises of God on Abraham's behalf. You see, and that is what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate that one has come from the line of Abraham. We celebrate that there is one that has come, the offspring of Abraham. What Abraham could not see in full and only see in part, we see in full, that thousands of years later, generations later, God sent one by the name of Jesus Christ through the line of Abraham that would make all of the promises of God come true, that would deliver and fulfill all of the promises that God made to Abraham that day in Genesis. 2 Corinthians In 2 Corinthians, I think we have the verse here. Chapter 1, verse 20. It says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Keep that verse up there just one second. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Who is Paul referring to? He's referring to Jesus Christ. He's referring to the one that is able through His life and through His death and through His resurrection... Through his coming to earth as Emmanuel, he is able to say to us this morning that all of the promises of God are fulfilled, that all of the promises of God get a resounding yes. All the promises of God that are made on your behalf get a resounding yes because of Jesus Christ. Think about these promises. I just wrote a few down. You're forgiven. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are a child of God. You're loved. You are approved. You are the very righteousness of God. You can overcome that sin in your life. And I could go on and on and on. But you know what all of those promises have in common? They are nothing but empty promises that can never be fulfilled without the coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ into this world, the coming of Jesus Christ into your heart. When we sing the carol this Christmas, may every heart prepare him room. It is for this reason. Because your heart is longing for the great promise keeper. You and I live in a world of promise makers. We live in a world of broken promises. We live in a world of unmet expectations. We live in a world of people continually and always disappointing us. But through the midst, and in the midst of the brokenness, and in the midst of the broken promises, and in the midst of the unmet expectations, and in the midst of the disappointments, there stands one that we celebrate this Advent. It says all of the promises of God, all the promises of God that you need to cling to for life, to sustain you, all those glorious promises that I just read and more can only be realized, can only be secured in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that when the the call of God comes into your life and the first question that comes across your mind is, what's the risk? You look to the one that risked it all. When the call of God comes into your life and you say, what do I have to give up? You look to the one that gave it all. When the call of God comes into your life and say, how much will it cost? You look to the one that said, I will give up everything so that you might have life. All of the promises of God. Find their yes in Jesus. Let me end with this. I found this story of a father who wrote a letter to his daughter Bristol Bristol was seven years old when she died she died of scoliosis and this is what he wrote to her and was read at her funeral my dearest Bristol before you were born I prayed for you in my heart I knew you would be my little angel and so you were When you were born on my birthday, April 7th, it was evident that you were a special gift from the Lord. But how profound a gift you turned out to be. More than the gurgles and rosy cheeks, more than the firstborn of my flesh, a joy unspeakable was given to me. You showed me God's love more than anything else in all creation. Bristol, you taught me how to love. I certainly loved you when you were cuddly and cute, when you jabbered your first words. I loved you when the searing pain of realization took hold that something was wrong, that maybe you weren't developing as quickly as your peers. And even when we understood it was more serious than that, I loved you when we went from the hospital to clinic to doctor looking for a medical diagnosis that would bring us some hope. And of course, we always prayed for you. We prayed and prayed and prayed. I loved you when you moaned and cried. I loved your mom and your sisters, how we would drive around hours late at night before you fell asleep. I loved you when you were confused, when with tears in your eyes you would bite your fingers or your lip by accident. I loved you when your eyes were crossed and then you went blind. I most certainly loved you when you could no longer speak, but how profoundly I missed your voice. The promise of a life with you, the promise of a life with you, all gone. Day by day, the promise of you growing up grew dim. The promise of walking you down the aisle one day vanished before my very eyes. But it was in these days, in these dark days, where the promises of God overshadowed any promise this world could ever offer. It was in these dark days where I was reminded of the reality of God's love made known through the person of Jesus Christ. My dear Bristol, now that you are free, I look forward to that day when according to God's promises, we will be joined together completely whole and full of joy. I'm so happy that you have your crown first. We will follow you someday in his time. Love, Daddy. On your worst days, on your worst days, what will you cling to? On your worst days, when all of the promises of this world grow dim, when all of the promises of this world seem to vanish, will you cling to the promises of God fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf? And in the midst of the brokenness of this world, will you look to, maybe even for the first time this Advent season, look to the one Jesus the Christ, who fulfills all the promises of God on your behalf with a resounding yes.